Good morning. So good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Josh Stratt. If I haven't met you yet, serve as a lead pastor here at Seacoast. And want to welcome all of you this weekend to church. I uh, want to welcome those of you that are here at the Mount Pleasant campus, those of you that are at one of our campuses, uh, other locations. I do want to give a shout out to North Charleston campus because on Saturday morning, about 4 a.m., somebody must have been so excited about this topic of conversation that they drove their vehicle through into the sanctuary of the North Charleston campus, and they cleaned it up yesterday, and they're having church in there today. So way to go, guys. Nice work. <laughs> Wanting to have church. The guy's okay, by the way. Uh, I think he had too many hash browns at Waffle House uh, right, right before he came over, but, um, but we're glad you're here. Uh, those of you online, we're super grateful to have you as a part of our family as well. I'll say it one more time, just so everybody knew they were forewarned. This message will be PG-13. We're covering some pretty uh, heavy and intense topics, and so just know that coming in. Um, your, your students are likely having these conversations either way, but some of you have younger ones, and we want to give you that warning. And by the way, it's your fault, um, because we're in a series right now called What Does the Bible Say About Blank? We ask you guys to fill in the blank. We ask you guys to tell us what do, you, what do you wrestle with? What do you want clarity on out of God's word? And you gave us the topic at hand today. So uh, it's your fault. And so I, I, I forgive you, but we're going to jump into it. It's going to be great. Uh, I want to read a few of the questions that you guys sent before we jump into the, the, the uh, meat of the message. Here's, here's some of them. What does the Bible say about, by the way, um, probably 80% of the questions that came in were around the topic that we're going to talk about today. And so you guys had overwhelming majority of questions regarding this topic. And so what does the Bible say about living together before marriage? What does the Bible say about infidelity? What does the Bible say about being another sex rather than the one we were born as? What does the Bible say about pornography? What does the Bible say about LGBTQ issues? I have a transgender child. What does the Bible say about cheating and adultery? How do I talk to my children about same-sex relationships? What does the Bible say about purity and dating relationships? What does the Bible say about sex before marriage and masturbation? What does the Bible say about sexual abuse? Then we had one question that said, what does the Bible say about dancing? After looking at my list of options here and praying over it, we'll be talking about dancing today. So, you guys good? Um, obviously, we are going to cover sexuality. What does the Bible say about sexuality. And if anybody wants to trade places with me right now, I'll gladly accept volunteers. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways that we could approach this topic. Uh, but, but here is my thought. Would you guys agree with me that there's a lot of sexual brokenness in our culture today? Would you disagree? Everybody on the same page? Gosh, our church disagreed on something for the first time since pre-pandemic. That was amazing. We are all on the same page, right? There's a lot of just a lot of brokenness. And, and a, lot, a lot of people would say that America may be as sexually broken as any country has ever been. Uh, and I would say that we are definitely giving it a, giving it a shot. We're, we're trying. But there, there have been some cultures. And my question was, I wonder if there's a culture that, that the Bible spoke to that was maybe dealing with a similar level of sexual brokenness as America. And it turns out that there is. Uh, the, the city of Corinth, back in the first century, uh, at times, it's a city in Greece, and it was a, a city that was dealing with just tremendous amount of perversion and sexual brokenness. In fact, in the middle of their town was a temple. They, they put up a temple to the Greek goddess of Aphrodite, and what would happen is they had most scholars and, and religious and otherwise believe that there were over a thousand temple prostitutes, 
And it would be a very normal thing in that culture for somebody to leave their work for a lunch break and stop by the temple, sleep with a prostitute, and then go back to work. It was just such a, a normalized deal in their culture. In fact, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In the chapter before that, Paul actually calls out the church because there was somebody in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife, and they were proud of it. They were like rolling it as a testimonial video uh, to their church. And Paul was like, no, 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 guys, we're off. We're broken. There, there's, there's some stuff wrong here. And he addresses these issues. And so I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, I'll start with verse 18. Here's what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, listen, the Bible, especially Paul, talks a lot about different types of temptations in the New Testament. And a lot of times he'll use language like resist or stand firm or fight. And when it comes to sexual immorality, he, he doesn't use any of those words. He says, flee, run, get away from it. Run like your hair is on fire when you start to dabble in sexual immorality. And the Greek word for flee is a word called fuego. That's how I pronounce it anyways. It's P-H-E-U-G-O. And it means to seek safety by flight. Fleeing is not meant to preserve some kind of moral high ground. It's, hey, this is for your benefit. You got to seek safety. You got you to flee. And so I want to I kind of break the message up in three questions that really get to the heart of all of the questions that were asked. And the first question is this. Why does God care about my sex life? <laughs> like, dude, it would seem like in, in the year 2021, with all of the global issues going on in our world, that God would have a little bit more to do than to be worried about our sex lives, right? And, and so why, why does God care about our sexuality? And actually, the verse that we just read, I'm going to continue, verses 18 through 20, really digs into that. Why is this such a big deal? He says, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Saying, hey, you know, back in the day, to get into the presence of God, you had to go through a priest and get into the temple. But man, now the Holy Spirit has come. And our bodies literally house the Holy Spirit. And, and so he's saying, you can't separate your sexuality, what you do with your body, from your spirituality or your soul, your emotional well-being. It's all intertwined. It's all interconnected. And, and he says, you got to be careful. You got to flee. I talk about this, obviously, a good bit with my kids. And uh, my, my kids are kind of coming into that age where we're having lots of conversations. And, and I wanted to share one of the illustrations that I use with my son, Miles, when it comes to sexuality. And it's a chainsaw. Because why wouldn't you want to work a chainsaw into a conversation about sex, you know? But, but Miles, you know, in these last couple of years, he'll be so excited that I even brought his name up during this topic. But, um, but he was like, Dad, I was asking him, hey, have your, your friends had the talk yet with their dads? And they're like, he's like, oh, gosh, some of them have, some of them haven't. And, you know, what, what do you think? You know, I was like, Miles, here's the deal. We're not going to have the talk. We're just not going to take the pressure off. We're not having the talk. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but this may be helpful for some of you. I said, we're going to have lots of them. You know, I said, a lot of dads feel this pressure that they have to tell you everything that they know about this topic in one conversation. I'm like, we're not going to do that. 
we're going to talk about it over, the, over years, and we're going to talk about it. But one of the things that I will tell him is sex is like a, a power tool. How many of you agree? Chainsaw, good thing, right? This is a power tool. I'm thinking Jeff Leinberger. How many times have we shown up after a hurricane, bunch of guys with chainsaws? We clean up people's yards. We serve people with these. Get rid of debris. I have one at home. I love using it to cut up firewood because who doesn't love a good fire in the fire pit? And like, it's a good thing. It's a phenomenal thing. What if I told you that I was going to run this chainsaw down to the four-year-old classroom, turn it on and hand it to one of the four-year-olds? Good idea? Bad idea? Right? I mean, you would call the police. Like, you would do something to stop me from doing it because this thing is a powerful tool, but put in the wrong hands or put without the right boundaries, that four-year-old's going to kill herself and other people with this tool. And, and if you're using a chainsaw, it's good to have some some appropriate boundaries with it. Probably want to be wearing some kind of eyewear to protect your eyes. There are some things that if you get use this without any boundaries, a lot of people can and have been hurt. In sex, I'm telling you this, it's a power tool. And some of you have grown up in, in church and maybe you heard from somebody, some pastor that sex was a bad thing and you should, you know, sex, like we don't, you know, sex is a gift. God actually came up with that idea. Some of you need to come to Christ right now knowing that God's idea, he's sitting in heaven one day going, you know what would be cool? What I could bless this couple with? Like his idea, sex. So it's a great thing. It's a power tool. But used without boundaries, used in the wrong context, it can do a lot of damage to ourselves and to other people. And we live in a culture that has really encouraged us to embrace our sexual desires without any boundaries. It's, you know, it's, it's not cool to have conversations like this. You, you, you don't worry about it. If, if you want to sleep with multiple partners, no big deal. In fact, let's create an app to make that easier for you to do. Our, our culture, if, if you're married and you're not getting your needs met, man, more power to you. Go meet your needs. You deserve better. We live in a culture that pornography, no big deal. Why, why, why would you make a big deal about pornography? We live in a culture that has said, hey, embrace your sexual desires. Don't, don't put boundaries around that. Don't stifle that, right? How's that working out? About like giving a four-year-old a chainsaw. In fact, did you know that rape, porn, sex trafficking, and pedophilia are all experiencing record highs in the United States of America right now? Did, did you know that the CDC... Uh, released a study that said at least 18% of American women have been raped. One out of five have been raped. It's not working out very well at all. There's an unprecedented 120 million girls who have been sexually abused or raped before age 20. What, why would that be happening? Well, did you know that pornography, the primary target, but A, it makes more money than Google, Microsoft, Amazon combined, it's the biggest industry in the world right now, and its primary target is 13 to 17-year-old boys. And you wonder why so many girls are being raped, because sexuality without any boundaries, teaching these, these kids, and hey, do whatever you feel like doing, is, is wreaking havoc. It's hurting a lot of people. Our sexual disobedience has produced a world that's staggering under the weight of disease, unwanted pregnancies, which often leads to abortion, which we're going to talk about 
next week because you asked us about it. Perversion, child molestation, addiction, and sexual exploitation. God created boundaries for our good so that we could enjoy his gift as it was designed to be enjoyed. Why does God care about your sex life? Because he loves you. Because he desperately loves you. Because he wants you to experience the fullness of the life that he's intended for you. And he knew before the CDC figured it out, before our current psychologists. And so did you know that even living together before you're married, non-Christian surveys are consistently saying that it's not producing good results. God knew this stuff before any of our psychologists figured it out. And he loves us. So he gave us boundaries. So why does God care? Because he loves us. Second question. How does God define the boundaries? Let's just dive into it. How does God define the boundaries? You know, in the New Testament, the word that's most often translated for sexual immorality is a word called porneia. Uh, you, you know what we get from that word. It, it's, it's a word that we get the word pornography. It means a surrendering of sexual purity. It, it really means sexual immorality. If you would think of it this way, it's, it's the selling off of your sexual purity. And it involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship. That's what sexual Immorality is when you read the word in the, in the New Testament, it'd be hard to figure out, well, what is it? any kind of sexual expression outside of the, the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage? How did, how did Jesus define marriage? Well, let's look at Matthew 19. This is actually a conversation that he was having. He was in the middle of a, a question series as well. A group of people came up to him and asked him a really hard question about marriage and remarriage and, and, and some of that stuff. And, and here's what he said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He says, Here, here's, here's marriage. A man leaves his father and mother, becomes united to his wife. They become one in unity. That's a covenant of, of marriage. We do that. And ceremonies all the time around here. And then they become one flesh. Let me ask you a question. When does sex enter into this equation? Y'all are like, I'm not answering your question about sex. I'm uncomfortable that you're even talking about it. Now you want me to talk about it. I, I get it. Okay. I'll answer it for you. After they become one in marriage, the two become one flesh. Describing the, the sexual experience. And God's design, God's best for us is that we would experience sex after we're married. And so where does that put us with premarital sex? That would fall into the category of sexual immorality. You're like, dude, it's 2021. <laughs> like, what are you seriously going to try to tell me right now? And, and I'm just going to tell you that my job isn't to edit the word of God. It's just to, to read it and to share it with you. And so that's what we're going to do. And it's interesting because Several of our pastors I've been talking to have said it's one of them told me it's been over two years since they've done premarital counseling with somebody who wasn't living together. And so I realized that I'm talking to a group of people who doesn't necessarily agree with this, who doesn't see it the same way. And I just want to encourage you. I, uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit of our story. When Lisa and I started dating, you know, we both had, you know, uh, had relationships prior to meeting each other. But when we met each other, we were like, we want to do this right. We want to do this the way that God designed it. We're, we're going to do our very best. And so we established a goal for us 
in our dating relationship is that if we are going to have sex, it's going to be after we we're married. And we knew that it was going to be really hard for Lisa to keep her hands off of me. And so we knew we had to have some boundaries, right? So we, we would kind of establish these boundaries. And as we began to fall more and more in love with each other and get closer to each other and connect with uh, emotionally intimacy, it became harder and harder to, to, to live by these boundaries. And so we'd cross boundaries. We'd feel guilty. We'd go to church. We'd feel we just, it was just a struggle for us. And I remember one day she came home from a wedding that she went to in New York. And she was like, Josh, you're not going to believe this was such a beautiful wedding, an amazing couple. And she's telling me about this, this husband and wife. And she spent a bunch of time with them and how beautiful they are, how pure they are, how innocent they are. And she said, and guess what? They decided not to kiss until they were married. And like any red-blooded American male, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I don't want to hear another word about this couple. I don't like this couple. I think they're bad people. Okay. Bad company corrupts good character. Stop talking about these people. And so I really did. I shut the conversation down. I knew where she might be going. I was like, no, we aren't going there. And, and fast forward a couple of months and we're struggling. We're about nine months out from getting married. We're fighting a good bit or mostly around just us violating these boundaries. We go to church one night, first Wednesday. And we decided, let's just sit separate. You know, let's just, we're, we're not in a good spot right now. Let's just sit separately. And so I'm in worship. And as we're worshiping and I'm wrestling through some of this stuff, I felt like God spoke to me. And I felt like he said, Josh, you need to lead this woman in this area of purity. You just need to lead here. Oh, she's desperate for you to lead in this area. And it was like, ah, oh, well, what does that mean? And, and for us, and you guys may be different than us, and I am not standing up here saying you should do exactly what we, we did. But for us, it was when we would start kissing that we would start to find ourselves getting in trouble. That was the floodgates would open up. And so I knew, I knew that's what we we're supposed to do. We get in the car together after first Wednesday. She's like, Hey, did God speak to you? I said, yeah, he did. Uh, did he speak to you? She said, yeah, he did. And I said, well, why don't you share? So I was hoping maybe he said something different to her. <laughs> and, um, and she's like, I, I feel like we're supposed to not, not kiss. And I was like, you know what? I feel the same way. I feel like God said the same thing to me. Can we start tomorrow? Um, which we didn't. We started that day. But, but, and so for nine months before we got married, we just drew that line, drew that boundary. And, and that sounds, I, real, I realized that in our culture today, I may have just lost credibility versus earning credibility because it's crazy. I, I get it. It's crazy. But I want to just give you a vision. If you're single here today, that man, there is, a, there is a potential for you to enter into a relationship without all of the baggage that, that comes with violating those boundaries. There's a, there's, it's, it was amazing. Our, our wedding, just even the kiss, like there was so much anticipation for that. And I believe, and this sounds crazy, but I believe God has blessed us in our sex life because we chose to, to exercise the, 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 the muscle of self-control, which is a lost art in our culture, and to do something real difficult going into our relationship. And so I would just encourage you to get a bigger vision for your, your life. You know? and, and by the way, if you're here today and you're struggling with sex before marriage, you're welcome here. You're in a room full of broken people who need Jesus just as badly as you do. But it, it, it is a, yeah, I mean, hundred percent. We are not standing in condemnation for you, but, but that's, it's definitely one of the boundaries that God has. Another one for us um, is, is adultery, adultery all through scripture. God establishes this as a boundary. Hebrews 13, four is one of them it says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 
And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I don't think you need me to convince you that this is not a great idea. But I will say this. If you're here today and maybe there's been a relationship, you've been flirting or dabbling or even entertaining in your own mind, the idea of going outside of your marriage or becoming involved with somebody who is married, I just want to encourage you to flee. That that relationship is not going to lead you to the blessing that you feel like it might or the, the emotions that are involved in that. Flee from sexual immorality. What God has joined together, don't get in the way of that and try to separate that. It's just going to create hurt and, and, and brokenness in you and in others. And so I would just encourage you to flee. And again, if you're struggling with adultery and you're here today, you need to know that you're welcome here. You're in a room full of broken people. We don't stand in judgment for you, but we do call you to a higher standard and, and invite you to just trust God in this area of your life. Uh, I want to, uh, are we uncomfortable yet? Or can we keep going? Keep going. All right, let's talk about, let's talk about pornography and lust. You know, what's the big deal about pornography? Well, let's see what Jesus had to say about, about this issue. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. He's actually talking about adultery. He says, have you heard, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see how he takes a standard and just moves it, makes it even more, more difficult in some ways. But actually, it's because he's calling us to a greater abundance of life. And, and he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus, he pulls no punches. He's like, man, this, uh, yes, adultery, but man, even thinking about it, even entertaining it, even lusting in your heart, you, you've already gone there. And if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Did he mean that literally? I think if he did, that we'd probably read about a lot of first century Jewish people who had one arm and one eye. We don't. But if you really do believe that, we do have a response station that we're going to set up today <laughs> for anybody who might be struggling, right? I, I don't think he meant that literally. I think he was trying to help us understand the, how big of a deal this is. He was trying to help us understand the danger that comes. That, dude, you'd be better off. <laughs> without an arm, then, then if, you, if you let your, your sexual desires just go without boundaries. And so pornography definitely would fall within sexual morality. What if I'm married and we like to use pornography in our marriage? Here's what I'll tell you about that. One, God says very little uh, about marital sex that he forbids. I mean, he's got, uh, he, he designed the gift and it's amazing. But, but with pornography, if it's a sin outside of marriage, it's a sin in marriage. And if we know God's standard is to, is, is, is that sex is for people who are married, then why would we watch people engage in sin? It's just not good for you, let alone the pornography industry. Roughly 20% of those involved in the pornography industry have been trafficked women, and the industry itself is hurting people. So why would we use that in our marriages? And I would just, I would just say the Bible's very clear here. Don't do it. Flee from it. Run from that. Run from that. And so pornography, lust, not God's best. If you're here today and you're struggling with pornography, I want you to know that you're welcome here. We have help that we want to offer you. There are some tremendous classes and some people that are just walking with each other to live in freedom over lust in their lives. 
and we don't stand in judgment of you. We love you. You're welcome here. You're in a room full of people who are engaged in sexual morality in some way or another or have been affected by it in some way or another. And so, so it, God forbids it. Let's jump in to the issue that probably got asked more than any other issue. Well, what about LGBTQ plus? What, what, what does the Bible say about these issues? And, and, and before I jump into it, I, I want to acknowledge that there's been a tremendous amount of hurt and pain that has been suffered by people who are in this community at the hands of maybe people who were religious or churches. And I just want you to know that that is not our intent here today. I do not want to add to your pain. I don't want to add to the bigotry or judgment or labeling of you. You're not going to get that here. Um, that's not what we're about. Now, um, there was like an attempted applause. Like some people thought about applauding there, but I think it's good. I think we ought to, we ought to like not stand in condemnation and judgment of people. But let's, let's talk about it. Uh, I've had a number of conversations, really a bunch of them over the past couple of months. And they've been with a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives. I've had conversations with moms and dads whose children have come out as gay and they're asking, how do I handle this? What do I do with this? I've had conversations with people who are just struggling with how do I talk to my kids about these issues when one of their friends maybe comes out or uh, changes genders or some of that stuff. And, and I've talked to a number of people who would identify in this, this spectrum, LGBTQ+, and, um, and have just said, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I want, I, want to, I want to talk about it some. And here's what I would tell you. Every one of those conversations went at least an hour. And every one of those conversations, uh, there, there was a dialogue. It wasn't just one person talking. And I recognize that these are complex issues. And that I'm not interested in giving you a soundbite that's just going to kind of solve all of these problems. If you don't struggle in this area or haven't been impacted by it personally, I want you to imagine the kind of pain that's experienced by a typical gay person who's grown up in the religious home or in the church, maybe around nine or 10 years old, friends start talking about you know, the opposite sex and they start joking about it. And, and you start to kind of hear these conversations and you're just not feeling the same feelings. And you start to wonder, well, I wonder when that flip is going to switch for me. And, and, and then a couple of years go by, and now you're maybe a teenager. And not only are you not having those feelings for people of the opposite sex, but you're starting to, to have those feelings for people of the same sex. All the while, your friends have maybe made jokes, maybe dehumanized people in that. And if you know anything, you know that this is not a safe place to, to have this conversation or to talk about it. And so you begin to just, especially if you grew up in a religious home, you begin to pray and ask God to take this away from you. Ask God to flip that switch for you. And maybe in some cases, it's years, 5, 10, 15, 20 years that you've been praying. Maybe you've even uh, tried out opposite sex relationships and hope that that might solve that for you. And, and, and you finally come to this place where nothing has changed after years and years and years of, of trying to make it go away. And, and that's the conversation that I've had with a couple of people. And I want you to know all that does for me and what it should produce in all of us is compassion. It's compassion that we would understand that we aren't walking in everybody's shoes and we should be compassionate towards people. I, I know that um, there are some of you that you're hoping that I'm not going to ruin your church experience and today. You know, you love this church. You've loved it for a long time. And I just want you to know that I'm not, I'm not intending to do that. 
There are different categories that people would talk about this issue in. Is the church affirming or non-affirming? I don't really like those phrases or categories. Why? Because I know myself. And while I know that God affirms of me, I know he doesn't affirm of all of my behaviors. And there's, I love my kids. I love all of them. But I don't affirm of all of their behaviors. But I also wouldn't say I don't affirm them as people. I don't think it's a, a real good uh, way to talk about this subject. I think a better way would be, do we adhere to the historical perspective of Scripture on this topic or the progressive perspective? And the reality is for almost 2,000 years, every major Christian denomination has seen God's word the same as it relates to this. And I'm not saying everybody's handled it great or everybody's treated people right, but everybody's kind of been on the same page. And over the last 30 or 40 years, there have been a lot of more progressive theologians who have looked at scripture and who have kind of come to different conclusions uh, based on their research. And if you know me and if you know Seacoast, uh, if you've been around very long, you know that we would adhere to the historical interpretation of God's word. And, and, and so what, what I would say to you, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and, and I, I don't think God needs me to speak for him. I'm going to let his word speak for itself, just in terms of what does God's word say about this? And I chose, uh, there are about six or eight that I could have chosen. I didn't put them all on here because I don't want anybody to feel like I'm trying to beat you up with it. I chose Romans uh, chapter one, and I did that because it addresses both women and men in same-sex relationships. And here's what it says. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served creative thing, created things rather than creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Second Corinthians 6, the verse that we started with earlier, it talks about forbidding men having sex with men. There's several instances in Scripture where the Bible talks about that as not God's best and not God's design. Not only that, you don't see any examples in Scripture of God holding up same-sex relationships as an example, as something that, 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 that we should look from. And, and so I would say, based on the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that same-sex behavior would fall into the category of sexual immorality. Now, what I didn't say is same-sex attraction. I realize in my conversations that there are a lot of people, you'd, you'd have a hard time arguing that they weren't born with some kind of uh, proclivity to be attracted to the same sex. I have friends that, that, that they would never have chosen that. They've tried to pray it away. And I'm not saying that that temptation is sin, but I'm saying acting on it would fit into that category of sexual immorality. Now, if you agree with that, before we get on our, our high horse, I want to continue reading in Romans. He actually goes on. I'm not going to read all of it, but he, he lists out a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and, and most of the time that, that same-sex behavior is listed in the Bible, it's listed in a category of a whole lot of other things. It's never singled out as a bigger issue or a worse sin than any other one, even though sometimes the church has presented it that way. But here's what, what Paul said in Romans. He said, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and do the same things, 
Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know, so often we have treated this like a hierarchical, hierarchical thing. And Chip said it so well last week. Does God have a hierarchy of issues that are on his heart? He does. And number one on it is, is love, that we would treat each other with love and with grace, that we would live with the tension of here's the truth, but man, I love you. And it leads me to our third question. We've talked about why does God care? We've talked about well, what are the boundaries that he he lays out. And by the way, very few of us come out of that conversation without some damage, without some brokenness sexually. The third question is this, where do I go now? Where do I go? In light of my brokenness, in light of my sexual brokenness. And again, I realize in talking to a group like this, there are so many that are here that have been hurt. Some of you have been abused sexually. And then some of you have have caused a lot of damage sexually. Where do I go with it? What do I do? Flee, but flee where? And I would say where you go with it is to the one person who can be fully trusted with your brokenness. And that's to Jesus. I think about a story from John chapter eight, and you already know, because I read you these scriptures, what, jo- what Jesus thought about adultery. But in John chapter eight, there's this woman, she's caught in the act of adultery She's dragged out probably fully naked and fully ashamed of her sin. And she's brought in front of Jesus by a group of religious people. And they, 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 they bring her to Jesus in this dramatic scene. And they say, Jesus, we know what Moses' law says about adultery, that she should be stoned. What do you think we should do? And Jesus kind of takes in this scene. And he stops and he gets down on his knee and he starts to, to draw something in the sand. I think he drew a line in the sand. There's a lot of people that debate what he might've drawn. And he takes a few moments and he, he doodles in the sand for a minute. And then he, he stands up and he looks at the church people, the religious people. And he says, you know what? You're right. You guys have, you're correct. And your beliefs, you're correct in your interpretation of the law. She deserves to be stoned. Here's what I want you to do. I want the person who doesn't have any sin to be the first one to throw a stone. And then there's this moment. And the Bible says the older people first, because the older we get, the more aware of our sexual brokenness, of our brokenness period that, that we have. It says one by one. They dropped their stones and they walked away. And at the end of the day, there was only one person left standing there that had the right and ability to condemn this woman. And it was Jesus. And he says to her, he says, hey, where where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus looks at her and he says two things. One, neither do I. I'm the only one that can, and I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Listen to me, church. We know what Jesus believed about adultery. 
Jesus didn't compromise his beliefs about adultery, but sometimes you could see what he wrote about adultery and then look at the way that he treated somebody and be like, is that the same guy? And it's because Jesus knew what he believed, but when given the choice, he didn't stand on an issue. He walked with the person and he forgave her. He said, I don't condemn you. I don't, but he didn't stop there. There are a lot of people that wish that's all he said. Hey, Jesus doesn't condemn you. You know what? We shouldn't condemn each other. Let's just let everybody do what as they please. But he didn't stop with that. He said, hey, I don't condemn you, but listen, I've got a better life for you. <laughs> I've got more for you. Go and sin no more. A better translation of that would be from this moment. That's why I think he may have drawn a line in the sand. From this moment, you've got a fresh slate. From this moment, go and live that abundant life that I've called you to live. And that is the tension that Jesus is comfortable with when it comes to our sin. I don't condemn you, but I don't condone the behavior. I, I don't. And that's, that's the posture that we ought to take as a church. That's the posture that I hope that we will take as a church around any issue. You came in here with pride. I don't condemn you, but it comes before a fall. We better deal with that. We better humble ourselves. We walk in here with all kinds of issues. You're not going to be judged here, but you're going to be called to a, a higher place and to a life of, of, of no more sin. Would you guys bow with me? I want to pray as we close. And as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I feel very strongly uh, that right now is a great opportunity to give you an invitation to this Jesus. If some of you, you need that fresh start. You need that line in the sand, and it may be related to what we've talked about today, or it may be related to something completely different. You may have been stuck in an addiction or stuck in a relationship or stuck in a habit, and you're like, you know what? I could really use some grace, and I could really use a fresh start. And if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, if you're here today and you would say, man, I want a fresh start with Jesus. Maybe you're saying it for the very first time. Maybe it's the first time in a long, long time. But you say, I need a fresh start with Jesus. I want to pray for you. And if you would say that, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Just slip your hand up in the air. That's awesome. Awesome. Hey, me too. <laughs> me too. Awesome. At the campuses, we're just going to pray over you. God, we thank you for your gift of Jesus. And God, I thank you, Lord, that when this woman had gotten it wrong and when the religious people had gotten it wrong, that you called us to a higher place, that you treat us with such compassion and gentleness. And yet, Lord, you call us to, to more than we think we're capable of. You call us to leave our life of sin. And so, God, I pray for the dozens and dozens of people who've raised their hand today to say, God, I need a fresh start with you. We just ask you for that fresh start. We tell you, God, we are, Lord, we're broken. Lord, we've fallen short. We've sinned. Some of us are so afraid of that word sin. Do you know that word? It's, a, it's an archery term from the New Testament that, that just means miss the mark. The Bible says we've all missed the mark. God, we've missed the mark. We need you. We need you. The Bible says that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, that you can be saved. God, we're confessing with our heart. We believe, Lord, that you came, that you died for our sin, 
that you took our shame, the weight of our sin that we couldn't handle, and you took it upon yourself, and you rose from the dead, and we're putting our trust in you. Would you give us a fresh start today? Lord, I pray for anybody that is in this room that's struggling in any area of brokenness. And God, we just pray, Lord, that we would come to you. Lord, that we would experience your love and your grace and your forgiveness, and that you would show us your truth and show us the way forward. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, um, if you're new to Seacoast, this was an interesting weekend to come for the first time. Glad that you did. We don't always talk about sex, but we, we will talk about issues. Um, but, but here's something that we do every single weekend is we do response time. And we just want to create some space. We believe that God is moving. He always does when you open up his word. He's speaking. He's moving in our lives. And we want you to just be faithful to say, God, what are you saying to me and how am I going to respond? Some of us are going to go to the crosses. And, and whatever area of brokenness that you have, again, it may be related to what we talked about today. It may not be. Some of us, there's shame. There's an area that we feel stuck in. There's maybe a sin that we've been struggling with. We feel burdened by something. We're just going to go to the cross. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, okay? Like we're all broken and we just come to him and just lay out whatever your area of brokenness is. You can write it down on a piece of paper and pin it to that cross and walk away much like that woman did in John chapter eight of experiencing his grace and hope for, for a better life. Some of us are going to come and receive communion here at Seacoast, we do this every week, and communion is just an opportunity to remember what Jesus did for us, that he died on a cross, lived a sinless life, paid for our sin as if he had committed it himself, and then he was put into a tomb, but he didn't stay there. He rose again three days later, and he still lives today, and we take that communion to remember and celebrate the sacrifice that he made and the life that he offers us. Some are going to come for prayer. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're dealing with a sickness, a disease. You're in a good place to experience healing. We've seen it happen over and over and over again. Our prayer teams would be honored to pray for you. You may be experiencing emotional hurt or pain. We'd love to just stand with you and pray for you. And here's what you're going to find. Kindness, compassion, gentleness, and love as you come and receive prayer. Some are going to go to the candles. And maybe you know somebody who's specifically been impacted by some of the stuff that we've talked about today. Maybe somebody that's felt like the church has just judged them and condemned them. And, 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 and maybe for, for whatever reason, they feel far from God right now. And you're just going to go and you're going to light a candle. And that's going to be your way of praying and interceding as you light that candle. God, would you meet them where they are? Would you show your grace? Would you treat them with the love and kindness that only you can? And then we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate an awesome God who loves us so much and who has great, great plans for us. And so what's God saying to you today? And let's respond to him together.